We'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians, if you would. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. This is a familiar passage, um, not necessarily one we think of with missions. We think of this more in terms of our own salvation. Uh, but I think it gives us a glimpse into uh, what we've been called to do uh, as missionaries. Now, a lot of times when we think of, of missions, we think of uh, New Testament passages. And this is certainly true when I go in and meet with missions committees, which I often do. One of the first things I ask is, uh, tell me passages that make you think of missions. You know, what are some passages that come to mind? And it's all the ones you'd think of. You know, Matthew 28, Great Commission, Acts 1, um, all of Acts. <laughs> you know, there's, those are the things that we, that we think of. But we also need to remember that we see missions from the very beginning. When Abraham was, was called out, what was, what did God tell him? That he would be a blessing to all nations, right? And then we see through passages we've read today, this, uh, nation talk uh, in throughout the Psalms. We see an example like Jonah, who was sent to a Gentile nation as a missionary. That the what is at the very heart of God is missions, and yet often the way we treat missions, the way we understand it, maybe is a better way to say it, is more like a ministry of the church. We look at missions the way we'd look at men's ministry or children's ministry, youth ministry, women's ministry, and so forth. Missions is the mission of the church. It's something that isn't something we should do once a year. It's something that we, we should be engaged in as believers year-round all the time. It's our mission. We've been commissioned with this task. And Paul puts it this way in this that the task is a ministry of reconciliation, that we're calling people, not that we're reconciling, but we're calling people to be reconciled to God through Christ, that people can be made right. And when we look at the world around us and we think of the challenges that people face and the hurts and the brokenness and the frustrations of life, this message that you can be made right with God is a message of incredible hope. So look with me now. In 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word in our worship, Lord, lift our hearts to yourself, draw us to yourself. We're distracted. We are burdened. We're weighed down. There are a lot of things that are on our minds. Lord, draw our hearts by the power of your spirit to see great and wonderful and amazing things in your scripture. And Lord, move our hearts 
to have your heart for the nations. Move our heart to engage in the mission that we've been given more deeply than we were yesterday. Help us to make different decisions, different life choices. Help us to think differently for the sake of the gospel. And Lord, this is something that we can try and do on our own. Cause us to realize that this is nothing that we can muster up in and of ourselves that certainly won't fail by tomorrow. But may this be a work of your spirit, an enduring work of your spirit in our hearts and minds, uh, that our lives would be continually transformed into the image of Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you remember the first missionary that Jesus sent out? Remember who it was? It's a trick question. Um, of course, we often think of the disciples being sent out, and they were. They were sent out a couple of times during the ministry, and then at the end certainly were sent out, the, the sending out that transfers to us today. But if you go back early in Jesus' ministry, there was a man that was pretty messed up. Um, he, was, he was filled with a lot of demons. In Luke chapter uh, 6, or Luke uh, 8, rather, uh, the demoniac had a lot of demons. And, and do you remember where he lived? Yeah, in cemetery, right? You know, among the among the dead. And do you remember what he wore? That's right, <laughs> nothing. Um, so when I say this man was messed up, um, that's what I mean. He was really messed up. I mean, he was a reject on every level. I mean, obviously, there's the spiritual dynamic. Who wants to hang out with a demon-possessed person? But then there's just the, the sociological dynamic of being a reject, of being a, a naked guy hanging out in a cemetery. And so this guy's life was, was messed up, and evidently he was known as this, so this has been going on for a while. And Jesus comes into town, and he heals him, and he makes him whole. Um, he didn't just come in and put a Band-Aid on it. He didn't just come in and say, you can have your best life now, or give him a pep talk. He came in and made this man whole, and he reconciled him to God. And this guy's life was transformed so much so that he wants to follow Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, says, go back and tell them all that God has done for you. And there we see the sending of the first missionary. The guy wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, go and tell them all that God has done for you. The old was certainly made new. The old certainly passed away in an instant for this guy. And the reality is, that's our story too. It's just that most of our stories aren't quite that engaging, maybe quite that dynamic, quite that exciting. But the exact same thing has happened. Our hearts were dead, and Jesus made them alive. And we were reconciled to God in Christ. And this is what Paul is telling us is what has happened, but he's also calling people to be reconciled to God in Christ, to see that everything has changed. And that is, in an essence, the work of missions. We're calling people to be reconciled to God. And this looks different in different contexts. It looks different in Tucson, Arizona, maybe, than in Zimbabwe, where the McMahons are headed. It looks different in China, possibly, than it does in Chile. But the point is the same. People who are lost, who do not have faith in Christ, are facing eternal judgment 
unless they're reconciled to God. And the message of hope that we have is that they can be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. And if we recognize the seriousness of that call to reconciliation, how big of a deal that is that the world is perishing apart from faith in Christ, this should move us to say, oh, okay, missions, it matters. I mean, it matters more than what game is played today or what I get to buy tomorrow or what degree I get or what grade I get or what bonus I get or don't get or what house I live in or what recognition I receive. But if we were honest, we would probably admit, at least I'll, I'll say it, I spend a lot more of my mental energy on those things than I do thinking about the gospel to the nations. I mean, the world is working against us here. The minute we pull out of this parking lot, we're inundated with you know billboards and our phones buzzing and beeping and signs coming through and text messages and emails and televisions and, and movies and all of this stuff that's bombarding us, that's giving us a completely different message. And so that's why we have missions months. That's why we have Sundays when we focus on missions, that we come back to remember that the, the, the mission that's before us matters. The ministry of reconciliation. Three things, of course, it's a, it's a good sermon, right? It's got three points, so three things we'll, we'll look at. Um, and there's nothing that's profound. It's so, the text is so clear, it's right here in front of us. The first thing in verses 17 and 18 is that everything has changed. The old has passed away and the new has come. And we normally think of this in terms of, a, of our individual experience, and that's certainly true. When we're saved, the old passes away and the new comes. Uh, but, but this is also true in a, in a bigger sense, and Paul is getting at that in this passage. We just have to go back a little bit to see what the rest of the story is. It's, it, it's kind of like when um, the uh, uh, growing up, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we had the little cartoon version that used to be out. We always watched that in school, and we were supposed to read the book, and then we watched it, but there were certain students <clears throat> who never read books, <laughs> only watched movies. So when those certain students grew up and had children um, and then decided that he wanted his children to read all the books and he read all the books to him, I, I kept having these moments where I was like, oh, because everything made sense, right? If all, if all you ever look at is the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe cartoon, there's so much more in the whole Chronicles of Narnia that help make sense. And so in my 30s, as I'm reading to my son, I get to have all of these, oh, moments. Well, the same is true. And a lot of times we come to Scripture because we look and we go, oh, that's what, the, that's what Paul's getting at here. So we're going to look back in chapter 3, just a page or two before in your Bible, to see what Paul was getting at here in the sense that the entire system had changed. In verse... Chapter 3, verse 7, uh, and there's a lot in this passage. I'm going to read through verse 18, which I know is kind of a big chunk in the middle of a sermon, but stick with me because I want us to see several things. Paul says in verse 7, Now, if the ministry of death... What is the ministry of death? Okay. The law. That's what he's getting at. I would have said the same thing. It was a trick question again. 
The ministry of death sounds like sin. But look at the next line, carved in letters on stone. Paul is calling the law the ministry of death. So what is in the world is he saying? Let's read on. If, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, it was, it was coming to an end, it was temporary, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the law of our sin, the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. The glory of the gospel outshines it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. I could stop right there and talk a lot about our future ministry as we go to Israel. Only in Christ is the veil taken away for Israelites, for Jews, as they read the Old Covenant. Yes, to this day, verse 15, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's a lot that could be said from that passage. There's probably a couple sermons, if not three, in that passage itself. But the point is that Paul, this is what he has just written before we read what we do in chapter 5, just a chapter or two before, that we see that it's not just you and I that have passed away, the old that's passed away, but the system of the law has passed away. And not in the sense that God had a plan A and, oh, that didn't work, and now here's a plan B. It was one system in the sense that God knew exactly what he was doing. But from our human perspective, what the Israelites witnessed was the law that they could never keep, the law that they could never measure up to, the law that showed them their sin was now fading away. Its purpose was fading away in that sense because of the glory of Christ and what was done in Christ. Now, God's law is perfect. And it doesn't become outdated or unuseful. Of course, it still guides us to this very day. It's God's perfect and holy law. But in the point that all it can do is point out our unworthiness, that glory is past. Because now Christ shows us that in Him, we can be credited with His righteousness. Now, that's something that you and I can understand today because we've been taught, right? The, the Word of God is faithfully preached here. We understand and we get this. But what about to the, your neighbor? How do you explain that? How do you call someone to reconciliation in Christ? How do you call them to see that they can be made right with God? Now, these are questions that we ought to be wrestling with um, to, to discern because in our, in our culture, and I say this, Having living in the Bible Belt, this is especially true where everybody knows Jesus and everybody loves Jesus, and sure, I trust Jesus. How do you get them to see that they really don't? That their faith is not in Christ. 
that their faith is in their selves and their works and their efforts. This is the mission that's before us. So the mission, first and foremost, is not just something that's overseas. The mission's right in front of us. The mission starts right here. The mission isn't just for special people who go places, although it certainly is that. But the mission includes us, you and I, anyone who's been called to Christ, to call others to be reconciled to Him. The old has passed, the new has come. And so God, in verses 19 and 20, um, Paul makes this, he broadens this to say, so God's reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and then He's making the same appeal to others. He's made us what? His ambassadors. You, me. Now, you may not feel uh, like an ambassador. Uh, you may not feel like you should be an ambassador. Um, uh, there are certainly moments in my life where I've felt that way, especially if you're around um, rock stars, <laughs> uh, like rock star evangelists, uh, uh, really, you know, on fire kind of people that can just go in and, you know, be like, yeah, I'd like cheese on that hamburger. Have you thought about your eternal destiny? And they just turn the whole conversation to that. And you're like, whoa, how did they do that? Have you been around those kind of people? Because I have. And every time I'm around those kind of people, I feel very inadequate. Because I would say something about how do you think about cheese and your eternal destiny and just mess the whole thing up and both of us would leave, leave confused. I mean, I don't have that gift. But yet I know that that's something that I want to be engaged in and called to. And so when, when we think about this, if you're intimidated about being an ambassador of God, I want you to, to tear, tear, I don't know if you're allowed to tear the bulletin, but... Um, <laughs> I want you to photocopy, take a picture with your phone, tear this out, write it down. But the, both of these things, I think, first of all, I love your new mission statement. Um, to exist, to offer, we're God's ambassadors, offering the life-existing gospel, or the life-giving gospel to the spiritually thirsty so they can worship the one true God. We know what, what missions exist because what? Worship doesn't, as Piper says. So we're calling people to enjoy, join in the worship, true, to, to worship the one true God and grow in the gospel, understanding and living. And then, um, this is an old bulletin, so don't tear out this one, um, but the, 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 the thing that's on the top, the John Frame one. Don't get overwhelmed by this. Don't get overwhelmed because someone else has the gift of evangelism or because someone else is, is called to missions. I used to think that way. I used to think, well, I'm inadequate because God hasn't... He, I mean, I thought He called us, and but He hasn't called us, and we're not going, and we're over here, and so forth. D- don't get intimidated by that because there's no level of calling. God's called all of us. And, and if you look over church history, church history isn't full of rock stars. Church history, including current church history right now. I just went to the Gospel Coalition, a big conference, like three or 5,000 people, a bunch of people there. And there were speakers like D.A. Carson, John Piper, um, Tim Keller, uh, uh, David Platt, um, and all of these, you know, kind of rock star types. And so the first day I'm listening to these different sermons that are being given, and the first day I just felt completely inadequate. And the second day I felt like, What's the point in even trying? I mean, radical? I'll never, I'll never be that radical. That guy's crazy radical. I mean, he's just incredible. And I realized by the end of that conference that for every guy that was up there on stage, there were thousands of pastors and missionaries and parishioners and people in the pew who were just faithfully living a life that honors Christ who are calling other people to be reconciled to God. Church history is not full of rock stars. 
God certainly can use them, not knocking them, praise God for them, love reading their books and hearing their sermons. But church history is full of people like you and me. You don't have to be a rock star. You don't have to have a book. You don't have to have your name in lights. You don't have to be known. Just be faithful. God's given you opportunities that no one else has. God's given you opportunities that no one else has to call other people to be reconciled to God in Christ. And then God's given you opportunities to partner with people and to connect with people who are serving around the world and to serve them in ways that no one else is serving them. Your church, you are made up of unique people with unique experiences and gifts. And there are ways that you can care for the calls and the McMahons and all of your missionaries in ways that no other church can. So take that work seriously. Recognize that God is using you to write church history and just be faithful. Just be faithful. God is using us through us, making his appeal to others to be reconciled to God in Christ, that others would be. And then notice, too, in verse 19, that the message of reconciliation isn't just for our neighbors and what we do, but it's for the whole world. Of course, we know Paul's not teaching universalism here. I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. I know you guys understand that, get that, that that's not where Paul's going, that eternal judgment is is a real biblical uh, reality. But that the message of the gospel is for all the nations, and there is a sense of responsibility. When Jesus said, go uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts, uh, parts of the world, right? It was a, it was a both-and statement. He wasn't just saying, pick, pick your favorite area. You know, if you just want to hang around Jerusalem, you can do that. Or if you want to go, you know, it, it was both-and, right? Do go as you're going throughout this place. And there was this idea that the gospel needed to get outside of Jerusalem. And then how did God in his sovereignty do that in the early days? He used what? Persecution. And he spread the church through persecution. And we look back and we're like, wow, that's not how I would have strategized it. I wouldn't have planned it that way, but that's uh, pretty effective and and it worked. So when you lose a job or when your home won't sell and you have to stay somewhere or when you don't get accepted to the college that you want, you need to go back and reread Acts and realize that the same sovereign God that was extending his gospel through the persecution of other people, is using you, can and will use you through job loss and job gain and house not selling or house selling or whatever the situation is in life. Don't think that your circumstances thwart your ability to engage in the mission that God's given us. God's made you his ambassador. He said the whole world needs the message. We need to engage in that, to commit to that, to go to that, whatever that looks like, short-term, long-term, giving, praying, whatever it is, that's what we're called to do. And then the end, we, we get to see what the end result looks like. We fast forward to Revelation and what do we see? Uh, John says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe and tongue, peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we fast forward and we see what we have to look forward to. There's another fast forward passage, and you don't have to turn there, but i tell you, John 24, that gets a lot of eschatological attention, but I think it's also helpful when we look at mission. And it says, 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, some people will take a verse like that and think, well, if we just do it, then Jesus will come back, as if we can kind of speed up the timeline or something, and I wouldn't endorse that thinking at all. I don't think that's what the point of the passage is at all. I didn't realize this until I was in seminary, and a professor, it was a course on eschatology, said this, of, of all that I remember, this is one of the few things I remember. He said, if you will look at all of Paul's eschatological writings, there's always one underlying thing, and it is to give us hope. Now, I had been grown up that all eschatology was given to us as a map so we could figure out who was, what was going to happen and who was the Antichrist and all Okay. I, maybe some of you grew up in that context. That was a huge paradigm shift for me to recognize that, wow, the meaning of this verse isn't so that I can speed up God's timeline as if I could do that, but it's to recognize as to motivate me to engage in the work and mission because when it gets done, whenever that is, then the end will come. I, I equate it to, you know, you, you, you're home with the kids and husbands. I don't know if you've experienced something like this. The wife goes out and shops and you know you've got, okay, vacuuming, dusting. Uh, how do you motivate? Maybe some of you are more spiritual than me, but I'm thinking, you know, ice cream, right? You know, I, when these things get done, the bowls and the spoons come out, right? So the kids understand that the ice cream's not going to come out until, um, you can correct all my poor parental advice afterwards. Um, <laughs> the ice cream's not going to come out until the task gets done. But it doesn't usurp my sovereignty. I mean, if they don't get done till five o'clock in the evening and they go, no, we got ice cream now. I mean, it's not like I can't say, wait a second, it's five, we, we got to eat dinner first. We'll have ice cream after dinner, right? I mean, I'm still in control. It's still my home. I'm still the sovereign. But it's a motivation to them to engage in the task, to know that there's good things that come in the end when they get their work done. And so in a sense, I think that there's that motivation that there's good work to be done and good things come too when that work is done. When the end comes, Christ returns and everything is fulfilled and we'll see these things. Some have said that we don't need to go to all the nations, that the nations are coming to us. And so there's no longer this imperative to go. Um, I don't think we can go that far because the Bible doesn't go that far. The Bible still says to go reach all of the nations. And there are still nations that are unreached. There are now nations that are unreached again because of secularization, because of immigration. Uh, we had this conversation yesterday about places like Western Europe that we considered at one point reached. And we said, we don't need to send missionaries to Western Europe anymore. And now we've recognized that, oh my, there's huge needs in Western Europe because of secularization and because of immigration. So the, the point is, is that this task, in, in my opinion, this task to go will be with us until Christ returns. That we need to think about this sending. Piper says it this way. He says, you're either going, you're sending, or you're disobedient. And I think that just makes it very, very simple for me, right? Because if I'm not engaged in one or both of those things, then I'm not on the right path. So this idea of going or sending, being engaged, getting the gospel out to the whole world, it applies to every one of us. We've all been made his ambassadors, not just in a local context, but also in equipping those to go. Okay, and then the last point, and, and we're done. Verse 21 says something 
incredible. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you get that? That you in Christ have been made the righteousness of God? I mean, if the text didn't say it, I would almost feel... You know, like a heretic saying something like that, that we are the righteousness of God, but in Christ we are. He made him who knew no sin to be made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Let me put it to you this way. You're not smart enough, powerful enough, or creative enough, let alone holy enough to be God's ambassador. But in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. You have been made God's ambassador in Christ. Here in Tucson, somewhere else around the world, I don't know. But it's not because of you. It's not because of how creative and enabled you are. I mean, you think about our society gets this. I mean, we do everything we can to convince ourselves that we're wonderful, right? You know, all the self-help, self-improvement stuff. But we we get this. I mean, when we look at a... um, a talent show on television. I won't mention any specific names of any because uh, we don't have television. So, uh, but no, I'm kidding. The um, there's you know the ones where they come up and they sing, and they're awful. And three professional musicians tell them you're awful, and they go, "I know I'm not. My mama said I was a good singer. I know I'm. You, this is not the last you'll see of me. I'm gonna I'm gonna make it a bit." What are they really doing there? They are trying so hard to overcome reality that is reality. They can't sing. And we do this in more subtle ways, right? We do all the kind of self-improvement, self-help type things to just make. I mean, our world is a world of band-aids. We know we're not good enough deep down inside. That's why we're, as humans, trying so hard to be good enough, to be accepted by others, let alone a holy God. That's why the idea of God, the reason seculars want to erase the idea of God and want to teach things that do away with a creator, with a holy God, is because facing him is a terrible thing. It's a horrible, frightening thing. Unless you're in Christ. And that's where you are. And that's why you can be his ambassador. And that's why you can represent him to the nations. But it's also, it's why you can live differently for the sake of the gospel. It's why you can live differently, make different decisions about what kind of house you're going to buy or car you're going to drive or coffee you're going to drink or whatever. You can make daily decisions based on asking God, Lord, how do you want me to live differently for the sake of your kingdom? Are you, are you willing to go? Would you be willing to go? Do you think that that's, is that, is that too far? I'm not asking you, are you able to go or do you think you're good enough to go? Because anybody who was here during Sunday school and has heard our testimony knows I, I'm, I'm like the least qualified, least able person that should be going. I could, I could handpick 
at least five dozen people better equipped to go serve where I'm going. I mean, I've had this conversation with God over and over again. And I've told him, I'm like, Lord, there are people better equipped. Let's start off with this. How about let's find someone with some Jewish heritage? Wouldn't that be a great open door? Okay, then let's find someone with dual citizenship, or at least that has a third generation connection to Israel, because they could return under the law of, of return uh, openly and have, have a visa and dual citizenship. I can't get that. I've got all these ideas, and I've shared all of them with him, and he hasn't changed his mind. My point is, is that none of us are good enough, smart enough, creative enough, let alone holy enough to be the ambassadors we think that God needs. But guess what? It's not up to you and to me to recruit. He's the recruiter. He's also the enabler, the equipper, the sender, the strength and provider, the everything. So are you willing to ask God that question? How do you want me to live differently for the sake of the gospel? The last thing I want to leave you with today is not a guilt trip. It's not a burden. It's not a weight. Because that last verse, verse 21, is so free and so powerful that we have the very righteousness of God in Christ because of what Christ has done for us. The gift of God in Christ to us, what we have in him is such a wonderful, freeing, enabling thing. That's what I want to leave you with. That's the taste that I want in your mouth. I don't want you to see missions as some obligation. I want you to see it as some privilege. I don't want you to see praying and giving as some burden that you've got to be guilted into to remember. I want you to see it as some exciting, thrilling, life-changing endeavor that God has enabled you to participate in. Because why? Because of what he's done for you in Christ. You are the very righteousness of God in Christ. By faith, it's an incredible thing. It's hard to imagine. But because of what God has done for us in Christ, we're now as ambassadors. And we've been called to call others. Come, be reconciled to God. So let me challenge you with this. As you leave today, tomorrow, this week, and the coming months and years, continue to pray this. Lord, how do you want me to live differently for the sake of your kingdom? Ask him to show you these things. And then trust him to provide what that means to live differently. And he will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that in Christ we've been made right. We're not good enough and we know it. We're not even close. We're helpless. We were dead in our sins and you made us alive together with Christ. Thank you for that. I pray that you would use that reality to flame in our hearts a desire to reach the nations. And I thank you that we don't have to reach all of them, that we don't have to do everything, that we don't have the burden of doing it all. But as Frame wrote, just focus in on the things that you've given us. Lord, show us how to be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us. Show us that individually. Show us that as a church. How do you want us to, to, to care for, to steward what you've entrusted us? And then, Lord, may we be bold in our faith as we steward the gifts and the resources to do things in an incredible way, not because of anything in us, but because we serve and we trust a great and mighty God. And we pray that your name would be made famous around the world, starting right here in Tucson, Lord, and use us to make your name great right now, starting today. In Jesus' name, amen.